I now want to introduce you to a good friend of mine. His name is Justin McRoberts. Um, I don't know how long I've known him, at least, well, a long time, since the early 90s. And when I first met him, it was through a label called Five Minute Walk. He was a musician on that label, and our band was also musicians on that label. And we were the, the people that would make a mess of his house <laughs> and his church. And uh, basically, when Scum of the Earth didn't exist, we would go to his church shelter and just kind of get ideas and be loved on and be encouraged by the body. And he's an amazing man of the Lord. He has a lot of wisdom to share with us today. So please give your undivided attention to Justin. Thanks. Thanks for having me and uh, for the constant friendship. I've, I've had a kind of a longstanding relationship with Scum. Uh, I think it was actually many years after there was an actual Scum launch before I able, was able to visit. And uh, But I do sense kind of a, and I always have uh, a sort of brotherhood, sisterhood thing. I guess I might have more so a brotherhood. Uh, and uh, I'm not saying that's wrong. Uh, but, uh, and so I'm always, I'm always honored and, and privileged to come and be a part of your evening. And, uh, so this is actually the other part of uh, being at SCUM is teaching from here. Uh, so that like this thing happens where I'm quite literally like on a pivot and, and really nice kind of, you know, you can't really just kind of be in your own zone because there are people watching you from behind in this place. So you really have to pay attention to what's going on. Um, I'm going to share with you guys tonight from a, uh, it's a project that, that I've completed and I've been working on for a really long time. And one way it's, it's uh, the, the product of like a two and a half year creative process. But in a lot of other ways, it is the product of uh, 15 plus years of life uh, with other people uh, and me paying attention to what God has actually done in my life. And that man turns out to be a lot of the process of life with Jesus is very rarely maybe like a new thing and more so like coming around to recognizing the things he's already begun, uh, seeing the things he's already up to. Um, it is a, it's a project called CMYK. I'll tell you a little bit more about the title uh, as we go along. And it's, it's, a, it's a series of letters and songs I wrote for people that I loved. It began with a letter I received in the mail, uh, which I'll come around to at another point as well. But my uh, letters have always played a pretty key role in my life. Uh, my wife and I dated long distance and letters played a key role in, in our courtship. Uh, and so I'll read from the, the introduction of, of the book to give you a framework of where I'm, I'm going tonight. Um, it's called A Word About Letters. I once wrote a letter on a yellow rubber duck. I then stamped the rubber duck and mailed him north to Tacoma, Washington, where he was received by the clever and beautiful art major I had just fallen for. That duck was just one in a series of items I sent north by mail during the years Amy and I dated. From 1996, when we met, until we were married in 1999, we exchanged letters of one sort or another almost weekly. We still have almost all of those letters in boxes. But the ones we remember best are the ones that don't fit in boxes like that rubber duck. We wrote letters on beach balls, eggs, road signs, orange pylons, other things stolen from the highway. We wrote letters on spoons, bananas. At one point... Amy Runtz wrote a note on the underside of a Frisbee, stamped the top of the Frisbee, and sent it without an envelope. The Frisbee read, nice catch. In return, I sent her the sole of a hiking boot that had fallen out the back of my busted-up kicks as a, on, a, on, a, on a hike. I stamped the unpleasant, stinky thing 
and sent it to her without an envelope, bearing a note that read here, you can have my soul. Yes, that's gross. And it's gross in a charming kind of a way. And it worked. She married me. Now, Amy and I didn't live in the same town until after our wedding. And while a long-distance courtship might not seem like too big a deal with Facebook and Twitter and smartphones weighing heavily in today's social tool belt, what if I told you that I lived without Facebook? (laughs) That I didn't own a computer at all and that neither Amy or I had cell phones. What we had were the words we exchanged through the mail and the artifacts on which they were written. Getting to know one another that way meant that those letters, most of them written by hand, said it must said at least as much in form as they did in content. In other words, before the card or the box of golden grams read, I miss you, or here's what I'm up to, or please get a real job so that when we get married someday we can eat regularly, it said, you are worth the time and effort it took me to write this all down, buy some stamps, and convince the post office clerk to send it through. When communication theorist Marshall McLuhan coined the phrase, the medium is the message, he paved the way for a long-distance courtship wherein the rubber duck was the romance. How we said what we said to one another mattered. I think that is always the case. How we say what we say to one another matters. And I would go so far as to say this, who we are in relationship to one another matters more than how we say what we say. And sometimes who we are in relationship to one another means that we're saying something before we even know we're saying it. This whole project is about being postured in relationship to one another, knowing that we have particular things to offer one another. Uh, And I've grown in my understanding of the people that I belong to, the words I have to say to them, uh, and the ways in which I am required to uh, say those things. Uh, This is a song... I wrote a long time ago, actually. It wasn't for this project. Uh, my wife, in fact, when I wrote it, thought I'd written it about her. And that's not true. Uh, so there was some unpacking to be done uh, in the household for a while. But it was written for uh, this community of people that I belong to. I, 1998-1999 was a very strange years. I got married. Uh, I planted a church in Concord, California called Shelter, where I'm still the, the associate pastor. And I started this music career. And this body of people that I belong to in Concord. Uh, those are my roots. Those are my people. That's my tribe. That's my family. In a way that I've been unpacking for 15 years. And years ago, I wrote this song for them uh, instead of for my wife. Uh, and, and it's called <laughs> Backroads and Longways. Taking the back roads in a long way Baby To the places I've found you before I know It was over a long time before now I'm just hoping you didn't let go some days I just wander around in our memories. Some days I can't stand to be places you 
some people, you know, you, you, you belong to a family of persons, you belong to a tribe, and there are usually some people you belong to maybe a little bit more, I guess, than others, or more keenly. And uh, there's a guy in my community who is, uh, he's the brother I didn't grow up with, and I'm fully aware of what I mean when I say that, because I now know people who have brothers, and I've been through the whole thing, and they're like, yeah, he's like a brother. And like, have you learned to hate him yet? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, then he, you can call him a brother. Uh, his name is Stavros Caligiru. Uh, that's the guy's name, uh, which is quite a name. Uh, we got the b- best junk mail ever. Because uh, you get, like, if your name is Stavros, like, you get Steve or something like that because people, like, think it's a typo. Like, who, who the hell's name is Stavros? And, uh, but it really was his name. Uh, we, uh, we were on Young Life staff together, Stav and I. You got, anyone know Young Life? A few people, a couple folks? 
Young Life is like a, it's like a youth group for kids that think church is weird. They're right about that. Um, we're, it, it's mentorship kind of stuff. You take kids to the woods. It's like a cult, I guess, uh, in that way. So uh, it's how I came to faith. Stav and I were on Young Life staff. Uh, we roomed together in a place, Stav and I did, uh, we called it the bowling alley. It was 15 feet deep, 55 feet long. It was a single room. Uh, it was the, the basement of a house built on a hill. We had one outlet and no running water. It was awesome. Uh, but we could afford it. And uh, Stav and I have shared in, in, in our lives uh, perhaps most significant adventures and moments. Uh, and you just have to have those people. Uh, and Stav is, is that guy for me. We've been through our stuff. We really have. We've been through our stuff. We've been to the dark and back uh, relationally and in between us. And so uh, I'm going to read you a, a, a chapter uh, from the book I wrote about uh, the adventure of uh, a living together, uh, of Stav and I. Um, there are many, many stories uh, that I could have told, some of which I would have had to have gone to jail for. Uh, this one is not uh, one of the stories. But there is a courage that comes in living with other people. There's a courage that comes, a kind of faith that is developed. Maybe it is only accessible to those of us who are sharing our lives with others. Uh, that's a, uh, maybe an odd and maybe a kind of sweeping generalization, but I'm beginning to believe that. There is a faith that is accessible only to those of us who are willing to share our lives with other people. Um, and this is a story about that kind of a faith. I've heard it takes roughly 13 hours to drive from the San Francisco Bay Area to Tacoma, Washington, where my wife went to college. I happen to know that if you leave with your roommate in a borrowed North Face dome tent in the middle of the night, travel without an atlas or cash, it can be done in closer to 32. I came to this knowledge on an adventure with my non-biological brother, Stavros. He and I were on Young Life staff together. We roomed together in a place with no running water and have shared in many of our lives most significant adventures and moments, including... This one, you see, I'd fallen for this girl who was studying at the University of Puget Sound in Tacoma. Her name was Amy. It still is. After writing letters back and forth for several months, I really wanted to see her face to face. So Stav and I planned this road trip north. Now, before you go thinking that this is about me dragging a friend along on some personal romantic pilgrimage to see a girl, you should also know about the other motivation for our journey. Stav and I had heard rumors from Amy and from others about a particularly delectable French toast served at a Vietnamese restaurant in Tacoma. So sure, we planned the trip so I could see a girl, but also so that we could try Vietnamese French toast, henceforth referred to as the VFT. Now again, to say Stav and I planned this trip is probably a bit of an exaggeration. We didn't really plan anything. We just knew we wanted to go. We didn't have much in the way of money. Did I mention we were on Young Life staff? But we figured that we'd work things out as we went once we committed to the journey. We also didn't know exactly how to get there because we didn't have a map. But we figured we had the most pertinent geographical information. Tacoma was north. So armed with the knowledge that Tacoma, the girl, and the VFT were all located north, we hopped in my 1992 Honda Civic hatchback and set out. Stav drove up most of the west coast until we came to Fort Stevens State Park in Oregon. Fort Stevens is 4,200 acres of beauty. It is also a peninsula from which there is no way north into Washington. 
The sun had set long before we got there, and because we didn't exactly foresee the road ending, we decided to stay the night in Fort Stevens. Parking my car, we grabbed the very expensive and very yellow North Face dome tent we borrowed from my dad's jogging buddy and hiked through the knee-high grass to set up camp on the beach illegally. It was perfect, and it would get better. At 5.30 in the morning, the sun woke us up when it lit our tent up in the brightest, happiest shade of yellow I've yet to see. Stav and I crawled out of the tent and onto the sand where we listened to the glorious conversation between the sand and the sun and the grass and the Pacific Ocean. We were enchanted. We were also several hours off our non-plan and really had to get moving. Now, here's the deal. I gave this book, when I finished the book, I gave it to, uh, there are letters in here for uh, for 12 different people. I, so all the folks I wrote letters and songs to, every every letter was paired with a song. I gave a letter and a song to all these friends and loved ones. And Stav was one of the people who got one of these. And he wrote back almost immediately because he went right to the chapter. It was about him because he's a guy. And uh, he didn't read the rest of the freaking book. He's like, just read my part, bro. And uh, And he didn't say, hey, man, nice job. What he said was, Bro, how did you forget about the rabbits? See, there's a part in this book that completely forgot out that has to do with rabbits. And as soon as he said it, it came back. And I know why I forgot about the rabbits, because I wanted to forget about the rabbits. We left, and I mean it. Like, everything's true. Like, there, we had no map. I'll tell you a little later. I'm peeling back. The thing that's not in the book. We, like, we didn't know exactly how we are going to get anywhere. We just, you know, we traveled. And we just figured that once we got to Oregon, we would go camping somewhere where there was, you know, a camping spot. Somewhere with trees. You know, which is like the whole freaking state of Oregon. It's all trees. So we just kept pulling off the road over and over. And eventually we found this camping spot. We pulled in. And there were like 20, 30 cars and trailers and no people. But hundreds of rabbits. There were grills that were still smoking. There were generators running. There were doors open, tents. We were knocking on doors and trailers. We were like... Shouting into the tents and there's nobody there. Just rabbits. Hell of rabbits. We got to the front and we were, we were supposed to check in and we knock on the door and no one's answering. So we push a little wooden slat window open and it says open over the sign. and There's nobody inside. But there are four rabbits inside the booth. We didn't say anything. We just left. It's just, just get out. And, uh, Drove up the coast, and that's how we ended up like way off the trail because we didn't want to. We, I just, I don't want to say anything out loud to like, you know, claim this moment. We're like, all those people have become rabbits. Like, we didn't. I just kept looking over here at Stav to look for the, like, any sort of weird sign or strange hunger for vegetation. That's how we ended up camping on the beach. We left the beach feeling like victorious pioneers. We sang with the radio like men set free from the shackles of societal expectation. And we smelled like a couple dudes who spent the night on the beach, which was problematic because there was this girl up north I was hoping to impress. Now, leaving the peninsula meant we had to go south in order to go north. One of the moments in a journey when going backwards is the exact same thing as going forwards. We hit the highway not knowing how we were going to deal with our odiferous dilemma, but we figured some kind of solution would present itself. Something would work out. And as we passed through Astoria, Oregon, Stav pointed to this funky little hotel about a half mile up and said, let's just ask the folks at that hotel if we can use one of the rooms to clean up. Just ask. I walked into the lobby and I was greeted by a cloud of smoke with a person in it. This gal chain smoked unlike I've seen anything. I mean, like it was like a competition between her and, you know, death. And she just, bam, bam, just killing cigarettes. It was amazing. 
I said, oh, hi, my friend and I drove up from the Bay Area last night. And we camped on the beach, and I kind of smell bad. I'm going to see this girl in Tacoma. I could really use a shower. And the smoke monster from Lost replied, a girl, huh? Which is when Stav jumped into the lobby and said, well, there's also this Vietnamese French toast. Instead, a key slid across the desk, followed by a voice saying, room 15, first floor, bring him back when you're done. Stav showered while I cleaned out the car, and I showered while Stav returned the keys to La Dame de Fumer. And 30 minutes later, we were back on the road headed north. We got to Tacoma early enough to tell some stories to Amy and her roommates about our journey, including the small bits I just shared with you. And that journey provides Stavros and I with a memory that will last our entire lives, despite having very little knowledge about how we were going to go about it when we set out. Or maybe it would be more accurate to say that the incompleteness of our knowledge was actually part of what made it such a memorable trip. Maybe that's why God doesn't tell me everything. Because life's better when it's not the way I plan it. Life's better when I have to depend on someone else. Maybe he really likes the way I improvise. Maybe God wants me to be as creative as I am obedient. And I don't know for sure. I'm just vamping on what I do know. But part of what I do know is that God doesn't withhold information because he wants me to live in fear. I think God refrains from showing me the whole story because he wants me to actively live in confidence with what I do know and courageously live into the adventure laid before me. I can so easily get hung up on what I don't know, that I let fear of what might happen keep me from acting. But when I can muster enough courage to step in the direction of what I do know, the unknown parts of my process take on better names than unsafe or unsure. When I act in faith, the unknown parts of my life take on names like possibility and adventure. I honestly have come to believe this for myself, and I project this now onto the world, the kind of courage it takes to live well and to live beyond ourselves really comes oftentimes from other people. We borrow on the courage and the faith of those we've been given to. We need one another to live completely. Uh, there's a part of this song uh, that you, uh, I'll ask you to sing. Uh, uh, and uh, when I get there, I'll teach it to you. Up until that point, feel free to try to sing along. You, you won't know it, and that could get really weird mostly for you. Uh, You were in the praises of your people. You were in the silences between. You were in the wars between the nations. You were in the wars we fight for peace. You were in the absence of a father. You were in a mother's patient love. You were in the dreams of friends who wander. You and the world's they dream and up. Here's your part. Lord, give me eyes to see. Lord, give me strength to lead. You give me all I need. So give me courage to believe. You're in the midst of all who gather. You were in the bread and in the wine. You were in the gifts we come to offer. You were in our sacrifice of time. You were in the neighborhoods we live in. You were in the ones we're driving by. You were for the ones we call our neighbors and the ones. 
to still escape our eyes. Lord, give me eyes to see strength in thee. Lord, give me strength to be. You give me all I need. You give me all I need. So give me courage to believe. You're in the blood, the water, compassion for the poor. You're in our longing for justice. The heart that longs no more. You're in our hope for tomorrow. The pain of today, you are where you are. You are where you are. You're in the blood and the water. Compassion for the poor. You're in our longing for justice. You're in the heart that longs no more. You're in the hope for tomorrow. You're in the pain of the day. You are where you are. You are where you are. Give me eyes to see. Look at strength to be you give me all I need so give me courage to be let's do that one more time sing it out with me Lord give me eyes to see Lord give me eyes to see Lord give me strength to be you give me So give me courage to believe. Amen. Nice job. I don't at all pretend to think that, uh, that the belonging together and having relationships is all, you know, I, I, mean, I feel obligated to say this. It's not all, I don't know, whatever you say, cheese and cherries, whatever the new phrase is. Uh, I don't know if you've tried that. It's fantastic. Depending on the cherry. Uh, Belonging to one another. If you've lived life long enough with someone, you know that uh, there really is that phase. I made a joke about it earlier where you kind of learn to dislike someone uh, and you have to get past that. Good relationships aren't relationships in which like you just kind of dig everything about the other person. Really good relationships are actually relationships in which you learn all the things you don't like about that person and you're able to live in disagreement about things. Disagreement, as it turns out, is not the end of relationship. It is a form of relationship. Can I get a witness? Disagreement is a form of relationship. We got some... Maybe you should go to the couples thing. Uh, It's awesome. God bless you. I feel that. Most of the letters in the book uh, are written to people that I know very personally. Uh, There's one real exception, and it's this one. one of my favorite authors growing up is a, is a tremendous, tremendous artist named Anne Rice. I don't know if you guys know Anne Rice. Vampire novelist. She wrote vampire novels before they got popular and ruined um, by lesser forms of vampire novelry. Um, and uh, about 13 years ago, uh, Anne Rice, this very, very, very popular vampire novelist, came out and made this public profession of faith that she was a Christian. And all her people like lost their crap. They're like, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> You're a vampire novelist. You're not allowed to like say the word Jesus in anything other than like a like a like, you, like in pain. Uh, but she's like, I believe in Jesus, and it was this big deal, and the interviews, and all this kind of stuff. And 
she was tremendous. I mean, she had great dialogue with people about this experience she'd had with Christ. And then three years ago, um, she went to her Facebook page and she posted, and I should have actually left it on the thing up here, but uh, I didn't. She, she basically posted, and I'll remember some of these things word for word, that she could no longer call herself a Christian because she could not belong to, the word she could not belong to this infamous group of so-and-so, et cetera. And she went on listing the things about Christians specifically that she had a very difficult time with, anti-gay and anti-democrat and anti-partial birth control or part, all this like just nuts, like this list. And went on, it was a long list of things, a long list of things and a lot of which were very accurate about some of who we are. What she said is like, I, she said, I, like, I believe in Christ and I'm willing to follow Jesus, but I can't belong to this group of people. And I read the list and I read their Facebook posts and I, and I, and I was like, like I, I buy the critique. Like there's nothing about the critique that I'm like, I mean, I'm a Democrat. So I'm like, I get it. I feel it. I feel the whole weirdness about Democrats and Christianity. I get it. But Anne, did you not know that coming in the door? Like, did you not know? Was there a sign on the church you went to that said, hey, do you have all your crap wired? Fantastic. Come in, take a seat. I mean, think about the legacy of this place. You were called the scum of the earth, for crap's sake. Seriously, you were called the scum of the earth. And that there might not be a more appropriate title for a gathering of people. Like, it's a mess when you get here. And 10 years later, it's still a mess, right? But we're the mess God chose. That's what the sign says when you walk in the door. Do you not have anything together? Or do you think you have it together so much that you look down on other people by which now you really don't get it at all? In what way do you not have it together? Is your life a mess? Are you lost? Come in. You're one of us. And that's what the sign says. It's a community founded in grace, every one of them. So shortly after she wrote that on Facebook, I had this experience. Because I generally have this thing where I think I'm above it. I think I'm past it. I think I've gotten it straightened out. And then I had this experience right after I read the stuff uh, and had a conversation. I wrote her uh, a letter. It's in the book uh, online. And she and I had this like two-week dialogue uh, over email. She's very kind. We just flat out disagree about some really serious things. But this was the experience I had about a week after that. A few years ago, I attended a church that was not at all my cup of tea. I didn't enjoy the musical style and thought the band's poor song choice was only matched by how poorly they played the songs they chose. One instance in which a double negative is not a positive. I didn't connect with the pastor or his topic, and I was actually somewhat alienated by some of his conclusions. It was a very traditional service. And as someone who didn't grow up in the church, I've grown accustomed to saying that I didn't have a tradition. Of course, saying that is like being the guy who tells the young lady at the bar that I'm not very good at pickup lines, and so I don't really have one. And if she's wise, she knows that that was his pickup line. So when it came to traditions, not fitting in was my tradition. As I sat there and silently enumerated the ways I didn't belong in that church service, I missed the invitation to approach the front and take communion. My row had emptied. And the aisle, my road had emptied into the aisle, and the band kicked back in. And I cringed again at the song selection, but even more at the sound of the electric drum kit. 
It was as if the drummer was playing a set of old Tupperware while intermittently firing off laser blasts from a 1970s sci-fi film. Moving to the aisle, I joined the others in my row and tried focusing on anything other than the music. The woman in the line before me was wearing a perfume I can only assume was called Wild Berry Menthol Mist. She was wearing so much of it that I could almost taste it when I breathed in through my mouth. Of course, the scent did take my mind off the music. But between the overwhelming scent and the sound of the Buck Rogers Symphony Orchestra in Christ, I had to work pretty hard to keep from laughing. Of course, I knew that that would be rude, and that's the difference between laughing at myself and laughing at other people, isn't it? Laughing at myself makes me more human. Laughing at someone else often means that I consider them less so. So with only a few more steps before I reached the front of the room where communion was being served, I thought once again about how these people were not my people and how I certainly was not one of theirs. And just as I settled comfortably into my otherness, I realized how much I sounded like a character from the C.S. Lewis allegory, Screwtape Letters. The story compromised of a series of letters, just like this book, between the devil and some lesser demon is about the devil's scheme to discourage a man from his process of faith. And at one point, the principal character is sitting in a church service while the tormenting demon nudges him to look over his fellow churchgoers and see their lowliness, their otherness. And the devil's hope was that this man would discover that he could not possibly belong to those people for many of the same reasons that I was mentally distancing myself from these people. And this memory was rattling around in my head as I reached the front of the aisle. And the way communion was served here is that once you had been served the bread and the wine, you took the elements in your hands and you served the person behind you who would in turn take the elements from you and serve the person behind them, which meant that la femme ma voix fragrance would be serving me bread and wine. This is the body of Christ, she said, broken for you. I took it and I ate and I lost any urge to laugh. I wanted to crawl in a hole. This is the blood of Christ, she continued, shed for you. I took it and I drank and I noticed that it was juice instead of wine, but that didn't matter. The matter at hand was quite literally the matter in the hands of the woman in front of me. It was bread. It was simple and nearly flavorless. It was juice. It was cheap and sugary sweet. And then this next line will be up on the screen. I spend a good deal of my social energy trying to surround myself with a tribe of people more reflective of my tastes and preferences than at the communion table, Jesus asks me to do something dramatically different. Deny my expectations, my tastes and preferences, and then receive into my family, my life and my family, anyone God gives me to. These elements, this simple matter was symbolic of the presence of Jesus Christ in and among these people, the king of heaven and earth, lover of humanity, friend of the friendless, voice of the voiceless, had once again gathered a tribe of his choosing rather than a people that make him good, make him look good to those of us with discerning social taste. Jesus did not gather to people he found flavorless and cheap. He never does. He gathered a community of people he sees as precious and priceless. And he had done so at the cost of his body and blood. Walking back to my seat, I stood a little bit closer to the middle-aged man who had been singing next to me all morning. And this brother could not stay in the same singing key for more than a phrase or two. But how much better it is to sing off-key 
with a full heart than to sing with precision and not mean a freaking word. Together, he and I sang with the band, Just As I Am, though tossed about with many a conflict, many a doubt, fightings and fears within, without. Oh, Lamb of God, I come, I come. Who am I? Who am I to tell him who I want to belong to? That's not my choice. It's not my choice. He has gathered you just like he gathered the person next to you, just like he gathered the people we don't want to belong to. And that's not our choice. Neither was belonging to him in the first place. He chose us and we received him as he chose us. The foundation of Christian community is grace, never preference, never preference. So I wrote a song at, that went along with the letter and uh, Anne said she liked the song, which is great. Uh, I asked her if she would post it on her Facebook page and she said no. Uh, but the attempt was to try to put Anne and Jesus in a room and see what that conversation might sound like. And it sounded a little bit like this. For the team, take it on the chin, pick yourself back up, brace yourself again, so they don't come to fight, they only come to win, so take one for the team, take it on the chin. Another step, a mile beyond the call. Bear the weight of choice to choose something at all. At times you want to stop, at times you want to grow. Seek another step.
project um, called CMYK uh, is a reflection. For me, I love process language. Uh, I think journeys are great, uh, but in a pro- you can come to the end of a journey and still be the same person. Uh, at the end of a process, hopefully it's you that's been changed. And I think that's the way that life together ends up working. We are the ones who are changed. And then in a sense, it almost doesn't matter where we end up. So uh, in print process, uh, these are the four elements. Any printed image you pick up, it's cyan, magenta, yellow, and black, which is called key. And uh, you have to have all the elements. You've got to have cyan. If If you print an image without cyan, you lose Christmas. If you print an image without magenta, you lose warmth. If you print an image without yellow, you lose shine and vibrance and life. And if you print an image... Without black, you lose depth and you lose clarity. And that understanding has given me some freedom about approaching some of the maybe darker elements of life. They're strangely necessary elements. And so I'm going to share with you a a very short kind of brief story about a a darker part of my life's process. I mentioned that this whole project started with a letter and the letters have played a a key. And this is where I'll kind of give you an insight into uh, what that sounded like and what that looked like. If you go to the next frame here. Um, the next picture on the thing. This is Mount Diablo. Uh, I live about 16 miles from here now. And uh, the chapter called 33 is about my 33rd birthday. Uh, my dad was 33 the day I was born. And on my 33rd birthday, I went out to Mount Diablo and ran the mountain. My dad and I would go jogging on the mountain. That was like our thing. We went jogging together. Like other dads have like baseball or football or like building CO2 powered rifles and shooting squirrels or whatever. You know who you are, Colorado. Um, my dad and I went jogging, uh, and we would often jog on the mountain. And the and some of you guys know uh, a little bit of my history, but uh, a number of years ago, I lost my father to suicide, and I'd written a lot uh, of kind of about that, about losing my dad to suicide, and about like my kind of experience in there. But I'd never really written anything to my dad about that. My father, on the night that he left us, um, he wrote a note to me. Um, And it was the one and only thing actually he had ever really written down. And and the thing is, my dad was not like a depressed, sad person. He was a funny, funny guy. He was a great man. He was a joyful person. Uh, But he was a guy who was just beat up by the world around him. And he came to a a dark moment in his process that he thought was the end of his process. Uh, and gave up there. And at that moment, he wrote a very short note. And he said, son, take care of your mother. I love you both too much to drag you into what I'm going through. And then he said, I'm sorry, I just can't. And there was a comma and a couple dots, and that was the end of the note. And you've been here where someone says something to you, and it gets inside you, and it won't leave. And those words, I'm sorry, I just can't, hung out inside me for a long, long time. I think the soul works like, we talk about the body's a temple. I I think the soul is like a room and you can hit a note and if the note resonates with that certain note, uh, with the room that resonates with that certain note, the room just kind of keeps ringing. And for years, specifically as as pertained to issues of fatherhood, my soul rang in the key of, I'm sorry, I just can't. Well, on the 33rd, on the morning of my 33rd birthday, I woke up and I put on a pair of my dad's old running shoes and there's a letter and a song in here that I won't do right now. And I ran past the place where we scattered my dad's ashes and I ran past the place we would always stop my dad and I when we went jogging. It was always this point where he would just crap out because he couldn't go any further. 
But I didn't stop. And seven and a half miles later, 1,400 feet of ascent, I stood on top of Mount Diablo, a place my, never, my dad never stood unless he drove. And I did so because I needed to say to myself something and say to him something that is an essential part of my process in this sort of darker moment. I'm a stronger man than my father was. And I'm not stronger because I'm naturally stronger and I didn't come to that conclusion on my own. I'm stronger because I've recognized that the grace of Christ is the source of my life and that I won't judge myself by my successes and failures. But I didn't come to that conclusion on my own that was spoken into my life through a letter I got from a a 19-year-old Kenyan boy that my my wife and I sponsored. His name is uh, Zablon Amondi. There's a picture actually of uh, of Zablon here. If you go to the next frame, uh, one more. That's Zablon. That's my wife and I. <laughs> We're the white ones, in case there's any confusion. Um, this is in the slum where, where, uh, where Zablon lives. Uh, hung out with him and looked through 10 years of letters. At the time we met him, we'd sponsored him through compassion for 10 years. And it, really, it was like reading through 10 years of personal history. There's a picture here of the letters that we keep of his. And the one on the left is the letter I got after we came home. See, we got home and uh, after seeing him for a couple of days. And uh, we got a notification from the pastor who runs his program. And the pastor wrote us to let us know that Zablon's dad had died. And there had been some health complications. And so we hopped online and wrote him and said, we love you. We're praying for you. We're sorry. What do you say? You know? And he wrote this letter back. And it's this really sweet, heartwarming letter. You can't really tell from where, if you're sitting back here. It's this really kind, sweet, generous letter. And he sent it along with a picture of him, all like cool guy and cool because he's a teenager. Doesn't really know how to do his emotions. And uh, he, in the right smack dab in the middle of the letter, were these words that got inside me. I was sad that my father died. But I know I have a father in heaven now. Do you know that you too are as a father to me? You have provided for me and taken care of me. And about the 50th time I read that paragraph, it just kind of started ringing differently in my soul. And quite literally, my soul stopped ringing in the key of, I'm sorry, I just can't. And started ringing in the key of, you are as a father to me, you are as a father to me. You are as a father to me. And it unlocked this thing in me that I had totally put away. I had quit on that part of my process, just like my dad had quit on the whole of his process. But this 19-year-old's words unlocked this, and I realized I want that. I want that for my life. I want to be a dad. Want to. So here's a picture of my son. That's my boy. His name is Asa Jonathan McRoberts. Asa is a Hebrew word that means healer, and Jonathan was my father's name. There is a new thing that has begun in me and my family, the legacy of workaholism and mistaken identity that marks my father's family's history is not my history. That's my dad's history. Mine is a new history. And I didn't come to that because I just came to it. I had to have someone speak that into my life. And this kid was uniquely postured to say those words to me. You are as a father. I've never cared for someone like that before. I never t- 
taken someone through high school and provided for their education and for their sustenance and never done that. You are as a father to me. There's a picture from his third birthday. If you go to the next frame, uh, Asa, what do you want to do for your third birthday? I said, I want to wear a cape and a crown. I want to ride a train and I want to eat hamburgers. So I could not find a cape for myself. That is my wife's apron. I'm okay with that, and so are you. There's a picture of us here at the burger joint. Uh, just fired up. Somehow some, someone found some Mardi Gras materials, and he got beads. Uh, that's my son. I'm his dad, which means I'm uniquely postured in his life to say things that I get to say and I have to say. So of all the letters in this book, to all the people I could have written letters to, they're the shortest letter and the most urgent letter, the most necessary letter in this book is actually the letter I wrote to my boy. And it just says this, Asa, you are my son and I love you. I get to say that. I get to say that. No one else gets to say that. And I have to say that because no one else gets to. And we know, don't we? Don't we know that there's a world full of guys who didn't hear this from their dad. I've got to say this. And I get to say this. And that is the nature of community. That is the nature of relationships. It's the nature of what we get to do to belong to one another means we are uniquely postured in the lives of those that we have been given to, to say and to do uniquely what we are given to say and do. You belong to the people that you've been given to. There are no just circumstances in God's economy. He gives you as a gift to the people that you belong to. And we have to, and we get to play our roles in one another's lives. I'm going to end with a song that I wrote for, for my son uh, is a huge risk I took to write a song for my boy. Uh, he doesn't like a ton of music. He, he likes some very specific music. He likes old Fugazi. Uh, and then he also likes songs about, about trucks and poop. Um, and I figured that if I did like a poop slash truck song, I might throw the whole project off. And so... Uh, so I wrote this for him, and it turns out he actually likes the song. He calls the song Whoa, Whoa, uh, and you'll find out why in a moment. It is a, it is a long look at my life and the process of my journey, and the thing that I get to pass along to my son. The thing that my father quit on was that there is not, it's the way out, uh, Abraham Kuyper, theologian, wrote it, that there is not a, a square inch in all of the human experience about which Christ does not say, that's mine. There's not a square inch in all of the human experience about Christ, about which Christ does not say, that's mine. It all belongs to him and he's in it somewhere. My job is to find it. My dad quit, I won't. And I don't want my son to either. This is a good life we have and it's a good life he has as well. So this is where all the colors of the world collide. You'll find the reasons for the life you're living Are predicated on what is not this is the good life This is the start of things at last When the lament over your absent father 
comes a story that can heal your soul. This is the good life. This is a life becoming whole. No longer know what you can call it, and yet you move despite your fear and doubt. This is the good life. This is a life of courage now, and you find yourself singing up. Opportunities of space, and I don't remember where we're going to set back there in in the cave. Um, where if you if something about a song or something something I've said has touched on a thing, you need to process with the people that you belong to in the space. Prayer is a great place and a great way to process that stuff, uh, and it is a process uh, that we're in. I'll close with this thought and then turn it over to the band. Like an image. In the process of being printed, my life has been incomplete only because it's not over yet. And just like the black ink dots of a printed image are key to that image clarity and depth, even the darkest elements of my process may be key elements, but they're only part of my process and not the whole, which leads me to believe that no moment of my life has been wasted. No failure or success is definitive of me. No season is absolute. No judgment is conclusive, and particularly the judgments that I pronounce over myself. So long as there is tomorrow, I have hope for change and newness every day, every friendship, every square inch of my life. 
acts like a tiny dot of color making up one small piece of the image of my life. And my life is yet one small piece of the grand image to which every life belongs and finds its place. I believe the maker of that grand image will make it not only true, not only beautiful and good, but in the end, it will be very good. Your process is part of the process of what Jesus is doing in the world. And because he's begun that work, he finishes it. And he finishes the things he does by making them very good. Believe that for yourself. Believe that on behalf of those around you who don't believe it for themselves because sometimes your faith carries the people around you. Amen? Amen.